We also know that healthy adult psychology, or in our context, healthy man psychology, is I am a part of the universe. So I'm not center of the universe, I'm a part of the universe. And how do I have my gifts to share with my community? The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hello, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and it's my absolute pleasure to be speaking with Hunter Johnson today. Hunter is the founder and CEO of two purpose-driven organizations. He leads the, the Man Cave an emotional intelligence charity that has impacted the lives of more than uh, 20,000 young men across Australia. And he's also the CEO of Stuff, a men's personal care brand that champions healthy masculinity. He works as an advisor to the Queen's Commonwealth Trust, a charity supporting young people throughout the Commonwealth alongside Prince Harry. And his work has taken him all around the world, presenting at the United Nations, Government House, the Human Rights Commission, Sydney Opera House, the Melbourne Town Hall, and various universities. He has been recognized as a finalist for the 2020 Young Australian of the Year Awards, was listed as one of Harper Bazaar's Visionary Men of 2019, and in 2018 was the Queen's Young Leader, uh, which was honored by Her Majesty the Queen. Hunter, it's great to be speaking with you, mate. Always a pleasure, Luca Parry. Great. Uh, Thanks for having me, mate. I'm really excited for our chat, as always, dude. Um, what's something you've learned recently? Uh, well, I'm running an entirely new business at the moment in the fast-moving consumer goods space. So sometimes I have to clarify in meetings, I'm not that dumb. Um, I'm just absorbing. No. So um, <laughs> uh, honestly, I think the lesson that I, I keep relearning is it's important to manage my energy and not my time. Mm. And as someone who's you know an entrepreneur but also running two businesses at two different life stages as well as managing you know two different workforces through a global pandemic which is really a global world trauma yeah um as well as being a human being inside of all that um you know the, the thing i've i've really honed in on and continue to hone in on is if i don't top my energy up and mm. do things that replenish me and be really disciplined around that uh, then it'll come at a, a cost and I'm actually not able to fulfill the desires and dreams I have for myself, my relationships, or my businesses. Yeah. That's a great starting point, Hunter, because, I mean, the big idea you've been exploring really speaks to the idea of self-knowledge and emotional intelligence and healthy masculinity. And a lot of that is about how we manage our, ourselves. Uh, take us into that world a little bit. What is it that you've been exploring now for... You know, a number of years, first through the man cave and then now more recently, just because, you know, you're called to it to start a whole new company uh, with stuff. So the big question for me is what does it mean to be a healthy man in 2021? Mm. Uh, when the models, the script that we've inherited from our fathers and grandfathers and those that came before them was contextually bound and um, had things that worked for that model, but also a lot of uh, toxic things which didn't work. And how do we, I really think we're at an inflection point for the masculine yeah. identity. And my real curiosity that I'm exploring is what does it look like to create 
a new identity for masculinity and one that is based on values and authenticity and what's the most effective way to do that and for me it begins with the next generation of young men mm. take us into the man cave itself because again an idea you know a very clear case for change uh, that we have particularly here in australia but this really is a as you say an inflection point for who who we need men to be and who we choose to be as men ourselves uh, knowing you know all of the terrible data that still exists around domestic violence, around drinking or gambling, you know, a whole range of kind of behaviours that are not social, are not enabling us to create healthy, gentle, thriving communities, environments, schools, societies. What, what are, tell us a bit more about the man cave. Like what's, what's the model um, and how do these boys and young men respond to the work that you do? Mm. So picking up the thread that you just pulled then, a lot of the systems that we have to deal with, whether it's mental health or mental illness, that's often packaged up as mental health mm. um, or family violence or, you know, to your point, drug substance abuse are very much geared around crisis management. And our fundamental belief is that we need to work at a preventative level. Yeah. Uh, and so the model of the man cave is instead of waiting until things get wrong or difficult or tough and we try to fix the symptom, why don't we go to the root cause of this? And if we often look at the root cause of some of the biggest systemic issues that we experience in our societies, it's often what we see is hurt boys growing up into hurt men. And, and our whole belief is that if we can focus on boys' strengths rather than their deficits, that if we can expose them to a diverse range of role models that come from diversity that's intersectional, so mm. everything from, you know, faith, sexual preference to economic status to cultural background um, to privilege levels, that these boys can see a part of themselves in these diverse role models and can then, um, by nature of that, have an experience of masculinity that's outside of the narrow confine that they've inherited from their upbringing. And I think that's, you know, it's statistics we're familiar with. Uh, you know, one in four young people experience a mental illness before they're 18. Suicide is the leading cause of death for young men under the age of 25. So it's not drink driving it's not overdosing on drugs it's actually themselves wow. uh and one more than one woman a week is impacted uh, and by impacted i mean murdered uh through intimate family violence mm. and you know the my whole belief is that inherently inside of all of us young men particularly are these deeply rich emotional altruistic lives and by nature of uh, a lack of a lack of positive role models and then social conditioning mm. and then an advertising and marketing world that is very misogynistic yeah. and hypersexualized it shapes a worldview of these young men that doesn't necessarily always allow their unique characteristics their gifts their spirit to flourish and so mm. we found the most effective way to work with teenage boys is using diverse role models that reflect a man that they would like to be like. So the mm. uh, facilitators we have range from Melbourne hipsters to footy <laughs> jocks to uh, some guys run some of Melbourne's biggest underground warehouse parties to First Nations people to former refugees to former child soldiers. 
um, that represent the diversity of masculinity we experience in the classroom. And mm. so really what we do is using relatable, diverse, highly trained facilitators, we know how to build trust and rapport with a group of very rowdy teenage boys who yeah. have the best bullshit detectors in the world. So you have to have <laughs> a level of authenticity to yourself. But effectively what they can do is um, meet the boys where they're at using language and banter that they respect and understand. And then we create spaces for boys to just take off the mask they wear every day and start to explore who are they outside of this performance that they find themselves putting on in a, in a school setting. It sounds really powerful, Hunter, and not just because of the process, yeah, but because of who is leading the process. I think you've spoken beautifully to that. Uh, we've had a Shanti Branch on this podcast before, actually, and some of the great work that he does in Oakland, California, about taking off the mask. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about the experience for boys? Like, wh what age does this, you know, of course, it's teenage, you know, the teens, you know, when everyone gets really fired up and, you know, um, yeah, puberty kind of starts to take over, et cetera. But to take us a bit more into, you know, what have you found? Because you've been running this now for how many years? So we started uh, in 2014. So yeah, it great. was a, a passion project for about three years and then had that crucible moment to jump off the the, the kind of the, <laughs> the hope cliff of going, I hope this works if we jump into this full time uh, in 2018 where we set it up as a, a registered charity. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. So to your point, um, how do we, what do we do to create mm. experience for boys and what does that look like? Well, I think the, the first thing is they experience role models demonstrating the authentic, vulnerable behaviour themselves. But also the most important thing is that we have facilitators who have range in their identity. So we've, just for context, we, our facilitators, if I put my CEO hat on, our facilitators are our product and we invest significantly in their personal and professional development because uh, sometimes they're going to be working with a group of boys who will sniff fear a mile away and mm. can, you know, be like a shark to blood. Um, and you're suddenly, you know, these group of boys have grown up with a narrative of don't cry, be tough, don't be gay, don't be a sissy, yeah. you'll be right, mate. And suddenly you're coming in with a message that's like, it's actually okay to open up and to express yourselves and to be vulnerable. Um, but more than that, I'm always conscious that vulnerability sometimes gets painted as like the, the golden bullet to fix masculinity. And I think, mm. first of all, nothing needs to be fixed, but I think we're at a unique point in time where we have the ability to expand our version of masculinity. And so some days we do need to be stoic and strong and, and hold ourselves together. The next day, you know, playful and um, expressive and, and curious. And then the next day to be raw and vulnerable and and honest and to be held and to be nurtured and to be cared for. And the big positioning for us is that by embracing some of those more what would be classified as more traditionally feminine traits, and that doesn't necessarily mean just female traits, mm -hmm. feminine traits, um, we have a more integrated holistic human being um, mm. that has the self-awareness to be able to choose, am I going to be someone that challenges systems of inequality or someone that contributes to them? And we found after working with 20,000 boys, they absolutely want to step forward and, and become the best men, not just for themselves, but their mm. relationships and their communities too. Wow. Oh, that's fantastic, Hunter. And uh, I've been really lucky to see your work up close. Um, 
and yeah, to be able to work alongside the facilitators. Take, take us into this world of schools, because of course, you know, like schools, like any institution, a place where people convene and gather for a particular activity. And, you know, the themes of my work in this podcast very much is that we've inherited a system, you know, mm. um, for better and for worse, that really is no longer fit for purpose. And its initial mm. design was very exclusive anyway. It was not an inclusive system design. So there's a lot of work we need to do there. But what have you discovered in, in kind of your work within the ecosystem? You know, because I know that you work alongside teachers, for example, and everything you've described about the emotional range and my work in social emotional learning is, you know, a great educator, as we know, has that emotional range because they're trying to meet all the young people they're serving at, mm. in different spaces at different times. So what, what is a, yeah, what are you discovering through kind of your work within the school system itself and what do you think needs to kind of shift powerfully? Mm. I just have such a deep empathy for school teachers. <laughs> I just, I'll just start with that, I think. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're underpaid, overworked and undervalued in society. And it just astounds me that that's the case when we think about the future of our planet and yeah. our species and how we how we treat teachers. It just astounds me. And so I'm I'm also very conscious to the pressure that teachers feel from parents and the parenting body. Mm. And I think schools, what we've observed now is schools are not only the education epicenter, but they're the, you know, school psychologist. Every teacher almost has to be a school psychologist and pastoral caregiver mm. as well. Um, but more than that, parents, we're witnessing this, parents are outsourcing their own values, moral and character development to the schools as well. And of course, schools play an important role in that. But, you know, as you and I both know, that begins at home. Mm. And I think there's just, we're just, again, if we're using the word inflection, as that seems to be what we've started with this yeah. um, podcast, it, it's, you know, the model is not working and, and we're starting to see the impact on kids who no longer want to build their sense of self-worth around uh, a mark, mm. um, but actually it's about the holistic flourishing. So their character strengths, their value system, what's the resilience and adversity that they've developed and experienced along the way. Uh, and how are they going to contribute to a world um, that is better for their children? Mm. And so I think it's it's rare and what we see is, is um, it's such a disparity between, you know, I was giving a, a talk at a school recently. I very rarely do talks at schools just because sometimes I see it as like, you know, the it, it, 45 minutes to run an experience yeah. opposed to I'm real much bigger believer in multiple experiences, yeah. deep behavior change work. But, you know, this school I was speaking at, it was a big private school. Should also just say Man Cave works with all schools, um, not necessarily private schools. But I was at a private school at this time. And, you know, as I was there, I was speaking at their social justice assembly and, you know, the, the headmaster gets up and speaks about we're men of character and values and respect and integrity and I was just watching the 2,000 students' eyes roll over as, you know, boys were being sent out for talking and also gave me flashbacks to what I was like as a teenager. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, I just think those are such big words. And when um, 
boys or young people don't have a lived experience of those words, they become mm. transactional and meaningless. And I think given where the world is at right now, we need more than ever to invest in deep lived experience of such important values because the reality is, unfortunately, those epicenters of values and moral and character development that used to be town hall, community centre, mosque, synagogue, church, are just not attended to as much. And what we're seeing now is kids are getting their value system if they're lucky at home, but it's often the internet. Mm. And so, you know, what you're dealing with on the internet is an algorithm that is designed to hijack the amygdala of a developing brain. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm sure we could go down many threads down there, but, you know, I think that's the work of Tristan Harris is so important mm. um, because, you know, the, there needs to be an accountability from those who are designing these uh, machines that are impacting the sense of self as well as the relationship skills of the next generation. Yeah. Oh, there's so much to, so much we could cover there. <laughs> so thanks for opening all that up. But uh, we, we had, I mean, a remarkable statistic uh, that I learned only recently is that for the first time in human history, m- the majority of the world's children spend the majority of their waking hours online. Mm. And that tipping point happened last year. Um, Nicholas Carlos spoke to this, you know, really the future of childhood is a digital childhood, you know, and mm. whether we like it or not, that's the trend. And so the big question is, you know, how, what skills, what capabilities, what values are required to be able to navigate this world? Um, and if anyone hasn't seen The Social Dilemma yet, which you know is a great documentary on Netflix that features the work of the Center for Humane Technology and Tristan Harris, as Hunter was saying. It, it, that I mean, it's kind of petrifying to watch that and then kind of see just how malleable our views can be when we think, "Oh, well, I'm," you know, we're all solid, and then you know the algorithm can tip us in a particular direction. What do you think, Hunter? I mean, I mean, the view of the future. It's always easy to talk about because. You know, but you, you know, it's very clear that you uh, and many of the guests on this podcast are deliberately trying to bring about a different time type of educational future. When we're having this conversation in fifteen years' time, you and I, what, what really is your your hope and your mission? Um, you're someone that's passionately working in this space. So I think with my man cave hat on, it's man cave is an essential service for the next generation of men and. It's um, delivered by community leaders in, you know, local language alongside local culture. And what we're able to build is a, what we've crafted is the expertise of how to engage young men mm. and meet them where they're at and bring them on a journey to their authentic self and then afford ourselves the right of going, okay, what is the type of functioning, healthy, contributing adult you want to be in this world and how can we set you up for success? Uh, because I think the reality is we, as you know, you and I often talk about, we, we are now in an incredibly complex society yeah. and it is only on a hockey stick growth to become more complex. And so what we can control inside of that is the relationship to ourselves and our relationship to others. And I think that's what you know, I really believe in for Man Cave. It's giving the boys the self-awareness, which then opens up the tools 
to be able to engage with an increasingly complex world. And I think similar to riding a bike or learning a new language or learning an instrument, if these young men can start to cultivate some of these skills from an age when their brain is developing alongside mm. their social skills, you know, it does become um, a training ground for them to deal with an increasingly complex world. Mm. Take us into the world uh, of stuff because in some ways it, it's, you know, the man cave is a phenomenal model with a great team, you know, and so you've co-founded stuff now. And so tell us a bit more about where that fits in um, as another part of kind of the marketplace that can, again, take some of these values into a different space. Yeah, absolutely. So Stuff is a, a personal care brand uh, targeted for at men. It's purpose-driven in that the Man Cave, which is a charity, is uh, the largest shareholder in Stuff. Uh, and for every $1,000 in sales, it'll fund a boy to go through the Man Cave's programs. And effectively, the way that I think about Stuff is it uses the power of brand and consumerism to positively accelerate not only the man cave's mission, but also diverse masculinity in the public eye. So mm. the, you know, the brands that probably you and I grew up with, Luca, were yeah. you know, Lynx and yeah. Old Spice and <laughs> we're familiar with the advertisements that come out, you know, spray yeah. yourself and a flock of gorgeous women come chasing you. I remember the beach. I remember the ad, The yeah. beach, you know, yeah. and, and we kind of giggle at that, right? But yeah. if we kind of zoom out of the situation, you know, where you're a teenage boy, you're getting your first deodorant anywhere from, you know, 10 years old onwards. Mm. And you're being exposed to advertising that will subtly uh, start to impact your belief system and your worldview and how you relate to others. And when that is being seen through the lens of links, for instance, you know, that, that if we think about the seed of objectification or yeah. entitlement or privilege, it begins to be sown then. Mm. And so... My belief is that we are just at a point in time where that brand no longer fits in um, to society, but who are the brands that reflect a more modern, authentic masculinity? And so the purpose of stuff is to support men as they navigate a new era of masculinity by giving the choice of, you know, I can choose an Old Spice or a Lynx or I can choose, you know, the deodorant from stuff, stuff for my pits that uh, I know will help a boy become a better man because mm. I didn't get that opportunity when I was younger. And I tell you what's really interesting is just observing the amount of men that reach out to me on LinkedIn saying, holy crap, I wish man cave existed when I was younger. How yeah. can I get involved? And the most effective way now is to purchase stuff products um, because that'll support man cave existing in perpetuity. So, mm. yeah, and we really want to leverage the power of, of digital storytelling, of content generation and, um, using the unique insights of Man Cave to create the marketing platform for stuff as well. Mm. Tell me a bit more about, oh, it's so, so exciting, Hunter, it really is. Tell me a bit more about this, this world of purpose-driven business because I know that part of your journey, we haven't spoken to it directly, is it's you know, values-infused businesses, right? So using kind of the tools and the innovation that a business can enable uh, but always through a value set, because you know we are. I think again to use that same same word, you know, of inflection. We're at this inflection point where companies are being held up to a different standard now, mm. and better late than never. But I think you know we're seeing this shift towards the B Corp movement, for example, or social entrepreneurship, as opposed to just 
you know, and at the same time we have billionaires kind of flying themselves in rockets to space, literally in the last month mm -hmm. as we record this, mm -hmm. which, you know, is exciting and innovative, but, you know, we've still got a lot to do on Earth. So I just hope the overview effect of seeing Earth from space means Bezos now is going to, you know, <laughs> a bit of perspective. yeah, to a perspective of how, you know, precious our world really is. Yeah. So tell it, take us a little bit into that world, um, because I know you've spent a lot of time actually building and thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. So I spent time in my kind of early 20s working at the Foundation for Young Australians and that really um, opened my whole world up around purpose-driven businesses, social entrepreneurship and particularly getting involved in leading an international summit called Nexus. And the idea was if we combine the next generation of philanthropists, so those who were going to inherit a significant amount of um, generational wealth, if we can connect them with social entrepreneurs, so businesses that have not only a financial return, but a social or environmental return too, mm. then that'll uh, fast track social change quicker than any governments or any corporations. And so for me, I really got to see what was possible when that was done well, also when that was not done well. And when it became about, you know, a founder seeking their own therapy mm. um, or relying on the, you know, the heropreneur tagline of being a social entrepreneur you know yeah. um and i think that's one of the biggest um bear traps on those who i do identify as the social entrepreneur is the subtle virtue seeking that is associated with it um and so i still come back to this that i'm a big believer that we can solve some of society's biggest problems with business solutions and so as i'm at to this day like you know, right now in the capital raise for stuff and uh, the, what I'm talking to um, investors about who have traditionally looked for, you know, very significant returns, um, I'm saying to them, I want this to be a business that your grandkids are proud that you invested in. Mm. And the way to think about this is how does this become the Patagonia for personal yeah. care? Yeah. And, you know, we're not going to solve all this straight away and, you know, there are other consumer goods brands that are making 10x return in the first month. And, you know, that's really important, of course. But I'm talking about something bigger and I'm talking to your higher order self here, which in, you know, a lot of their worldview goes against the profit <laughs> that's possible. Yeah. But what we do know is that when, you know, everything from staff to investors to the bottom line is that when people feel a sense of values alignment, of community, of psychological safety, and a sense of responsibility to themselves and to the world, mm. then we absolutely increase the profit that's possible. Mm. Uh, and my belief is that we're just at a point now where particularly it's the, you know, we even see it with the next gen that are getting hired by some of, the, you know, the big four. They're now starting to quiz the, you know, biggest financial services firms on the planet around what are they actually doing about their values? What are mm. they doing? So their corporate social responsibility or their reconciliation action plan isn't just something that's slapped in a document to make it seem like they're doing something. Mm. But what are they actually doing? And we're starting to see people trading off job prospects and the security of working, you know, in a nine to five corporate with something that gives them a sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And mm. I really believe that we're at such an exciting juncture where doing well financially and doing good socially are no longer mutually exclusive. And, you know, I think that's, that's exciting. And my hope is that stuff can be in an Australian context, a real pioneer of showing what's possible. And mm. I'm really grateful for, 
for brands like Thank You and Who Gives a Crap and Tom Organic and Higher Up for showing that because um, mm. that's, that's given evidence for me to go to investors saying this is going to be really hard, don't get me wrong, but here's what's possible. Yeah. I, I really think it, it, it just links back as well to some of the points you've touched on on masculinity as well, as opposed to being kind of this very narrow, hyper-successful you know, I, I'm only valued once I've made my hundred millionth dollar, whatever the case might be. This idea of realizing we're all in this together and kind of shift, expanding what it means mm. to be successful. It's actually changing our definition of success at a societal level. And within that, you know, within the field of, and the space of masculinity itself, I think, and for us as men, which is... Well, I just offer that, yeah. Luca. I think, you know, it is, it is a shift of success what was models of success to significance you know mm. and it's it's legacy and you know a quote of a mentor of mine a guy i know you know is dr anna rubenstein and a lot of his work he's done around boy versus man psychology and the framework that he's developed that i'll simplify into a sentence is um boy psychology is i am the center of the universe and it's about accumulation of power and status and moving my way up the social hierarchy, which works in high school. Yeah. That is how you survive the nuances, the complexity and the challenge of high school <laughs> is how do I get uh, work out where I fit in the pecking order and place my bets there. But we also know that healthy adult psychology or in our context, healthy man psychology is I am a part of the universe. So I'm not center of the universe. I'm a part of the universe. And how do I have my gifts to share with my community? And we only need to look who's running our respective countries, companies across the world to recognize that the psychology or the consciousness level that we see these people stuck in is still about the accumulation of power and wealth and status. And you know, it also reminds me of a book that David Brooks wrote, mm. um, the guy who wrote, you know, The Road to Character. His, his other book, a more recent book, is called The Second Mountain. Mm. And it's about his journey of making it, ironically becoming an author of character and then getting to the top and going, oh, my God, who am I? I've built, <laughs> you know, this whole identity. I've got wealth. I've got status. I'm writing the New York Times. Yeah. My marriage has crumbled. Mm. I don't know who I am. And it's dropping down through the second mountain that he gets to realize that life is about service and love and trust and contribution. And, you know, my hope is that we can just kind of fast track or build like a bit of a zip line for the next generation straight onto the second, second mountain yeah. so they can get there. Well, yeah, it seems that that's exactly what you're doing uh, by, by working with young people and just enabling them to, yeah, not have to take the, the path left up to that first mountain to prove that they can actually do it. Uh, you know, um, yeah, to go beyond the idea of that. I like that this language as well by Otto Sharma, you know, from the ego system to the ecosystem, you know, and realizing yeah. we are all part of a planet. We're all part of a society. We're all part of a school. We're all part of a cohort. And so, you know, who are we together? Uh, mm. And who do we want to be together? It's such a powerful question to start with. Uh, Hunter, I could talk to you for an hour or 10, and we've done that in the past, but I'm going to just ask you to summarize, you know, from where, where you are on your pretty inspiring journey, to be honest, like what is the reflection that you have right now about, you know, what you're discovering and the way you're trying to impact the world? What's your take home message? Hmm. Uh, 
Uh, I think there's two things for me. One is invest in experiences. Um, and I know that's something we both share is something incredibly important, but I think experiences in the sense of investing in experiences that are off-brand for yourself and finding whether that's in communities that you wouldn't necessarily be in, education you wouldn't necessarily do, or just finding yourself in really uncomfortable situations. My experience of that allows you to develop an empathy and a toolkit to be able to engage with the world in a completely more altruistic and Mm. thoughtful and conscious way. And uh, the second thing for me there is um, it's not about you. And what I mean by that is it is about service. And I think my experience, again, is once we get ourselves out of the way enough, then it just becomes, you know, us living our purpose, which is often in service. And so, um, yeah, I think they're probably the two threads that I've found to be the most beneficial. And I really think if, yeah, in my experience, if people live into those two things, I believe a greater good will come from it. Mm. Beautiful way to summarize the path that you're walking, mate. Uh, <laughs> Hunter, wonderful to speak with you as always. Thank you, Luca. Always a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.